0: The Gospel of John, and we'll be in chapter 20, near the end of John's Gospel. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we just want to read two verses this morning verses 30 and 31. John, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray once more. Father, please now send your Holy Spirit upon our gathering. Send your Holy Spirit upon me. Upon all who hear, we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Open up the truths of your word to us. Reveal to us your Son, the Lord Jesus. Hold him before our eyes that we might look upon him in faith. We pray these things together in Christ's name, amen. This morning, uh, we have the joy of beginning a new uh, sermon series. Uh, Over the next several months, uh, it will be my effort to open up the Gospel of John. Uh, John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. Uh, The commentator Leon Morris, in his commentary on John's Gospel, uh, compares the Gospel of John to a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is for the beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. Its appeal is immediate and never failing. I've always thought the the best way to introduce a person to the gospel is through taking them through the gospel of John. It's amazing if you read John's gospel, and I hope you do that in the coming days, perhaps in your uh, devotions as you seek to prepare your heart for this sermon series. Uh, It's remarkably fundamental and elementary Uh, It's very clear, it's very basic, it's very accessible. In John's gospel, we get a crystal clear picture of who Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And yet, at the same time, John's gospel also contains some of the most profound material in all of the Bible. It's commonly held to be uh, one of the favorite books of the Bible of even the most mature and seasoned saints, and they return again and again to the gospel of John to learn new things and to come to more profound and deeper understanding of the truths of God's word. Uh, there is more concentrated theology in John's gospel, touching on some of the most pivotal doctrines in the Christian faith than almost any other book in the Bible. It is simultaneously basic and easy to grasp and at the same time profound and out of our reach. Uh, There was an Anglican commentator uh, of the last century, his name was Edwin Hoskins and he picks up on this same tension in John's gospel, how it at all times is so basic so clear so fundamental and yet so profound and beyond us and out of our reach and he talks about how you can read john's gospel in conversations with great ancient philosophers and it can be so profound and yet so simple at the same time he says this the critic may range the gospel with philo and the alexandrian philosophers but and the question is important. Did the poor and the ignorant when they lay a dying ever ask their rabbis to read to them out of the voluminous writings of Philo or those like him? What he's getting at is uh, John is frequently the gospel to which uh, Christians who are dying, even poor and uneducated Christians, they say, read to, the, read to me from the gospel of John. They're not going to Philo and ancient philosophers. But then Hoskins writes a little bit later, he says this, He will not be true to the book he is studying if at the end of the Gospel of John it does not still seem strange, restless, and unfamiliar. Pick up this tension these commentators are getting at, profound and basic at the same time. Well, apart from being both simple and profound, the Gospel of John gives us one of the most intimate pictures of the Lord Jesus John Calvin has said that no other gospel exhibits the very soul of Christ more than the gospel of John. It's the Holy Spirit. Blessing (laughs) upon our meeting. Beyond the gospel being profound and simple, beyond it representing such an intimate picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have in John's gospel some of uh, the most quoted verses uh, in all of the Bible, some of the texts of Scripture that are most precious to God's people, for example, uh, that great verse, probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John eleven verse twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. John 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. These and like statements are found all throughout John's gospel and have been a source of profound help and encouragement to God's people. Well, this morning, all I wish to do is introduce the book. We're not going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. That will be next week. All I want to do this morning is introduce this series and introduce the gospel of John to you. The main way we'll go about doing that is looking at the purpose statement in John 20 verse 31. But before we do that, there are more uh, preliminary considerations I want to share with you. And I apologize up front if if this sermon uh, uh, sounds somewhat like a lecture. Uh, I have endeavored to uh, make this message more sermonic, but there are uh, some details and themes and uh, facets of the Gospel of John, some data I just want to shell out to you for you to have so that we can study this book profitably in the days to come. So I have three headings this morning to introduce the Gospel of John. First of all, I want us to consider the utter uniqueness of John's Gospel, the utter uniqueness of John's Gospel. Secondly, we'll consider the major features and themes of John's gospel. And then thirdly, we'll consider the purpose of John's gospel. Why did John write this book? The uniqueness, major features and themes, and then the purpose of John's gospel. First of all, consider with me the utter uniqueness of John's gospel. I like to say that we're Bible people. I hope that each one of you who are uh, children of God are eager students of the Bible. Well, if you're going to study the Gospel of John profitably, one of the things you have to appreciate is that it is remarkably unique among the Gospels, the Gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I'm afraid a lot of people look at the Gospel records, the Gospel material. And they think just in general, it's a big amalgam of various anecdotes and stories. They all basically say the same thing and you can kind of plop down in the middle of any one of them. They're basically all saying the same exact story. And to some degree that's true, to some degree each gospel is telling the same story, but If we take that approach, we miss that each gospel has its own unique burdens and an audience to whom it was written, and there's various material that's contained in some gospels that serves the purpose of that writer that's not found in another gospel. We fail to appreciate the unique burdens of each individual writer, the unique material found in each gospel. Perhaps you are like me. I grew up in church, and my parents taught me from a young age, even before I was a Christian, to read the Bible every day. And, and at different points, you'd be resolved, okay, I'm really going to zero in and study the Bible now. And I'm going to start in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And you get through Matthew. Great. We're cooking on gas. This is good. And then you get into Mark. And you're thinking, saying a lot of the same stuff. And then you get a few chapters into Luke. And you're like, this is just all the same material. And, and, and I would never get to John because I wasn't really understanding the unique purpose of material found in each gospel. Well, well, one thing we need to appreciate, first of all, is that every gospel has some uniqueness to it, but none more so than the gospel of John. If you were to read through the 21 chapters of John's gospel and you were uh, to compare it to the other three gospels, uh, you would find that no less than 92% of the material in John's gospel is unique to John, 92% of what you find in John's gospel is not found in any other gospel. Compare that to Mark on the other end of the spectrum. How much of Mark's material do you think is unique to Mark? That is, it's not repeated in any of the other three gospels. It's only 7%. 93% of what you find in Mark is repeated somewhere else in another gospel. The same amount, approximately, is utterly unique to John's gospel, which means most of what you read, you will not find Elsewhere. So if John is 92% unique, then that means that John's gospel does not contain a lot of the things that the other gospels contain, and it means that it does contain lots of things the other gospels do not contain. So let's start with this. What are some of the things you don't find in John that you might find in the other three gospels? Well, first of all, in John's gospel, there's no birth narrative. We're not told about the birth of Jesus. We're, we're told that he's the only begotten son of God, of course, and we're told that, that, that he was the preexistent word of God who came in human flesh, but we're not told about his birth and all those stories we tell around Christmas time about Mary and Joseph and the manger and all of that. We don't have that in John's gospel. We don't have a genealogy of Jesus. Other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, for example, are very intent on establishing uh, the line from which Jesus came. All that John really cares to establish is that he came from God, that he's the son of the Father. You have very little information in John's gospel about Jesus' family and upbringing, Uh, less information about Jesus' background than any of the other gospels. Now, this is really interesting, considering the material we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John's gospel, you have no narrative parables. That that method of teaching that Jesus carried on, that's such a feature of, say, Matthew's gospel, for example, there's none of that in John's gospel. The parables are not found in John's gospel. You don't have the Sermon on the Mount or other famous sermons and discourses of our Lord Jesus. There's no account of the transfiguration. There's no account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, there are certain emphases or subjects that, that come to the fore in the other gospel accounts that are just not emphasized as much in John's gospel. For example, uh, the subject of law or repentance or righteousness, the concept of kingdom. we got some of that in what we read in Matthew 13, all those statements, the kingdom of heaven is like, you don't get much of that in John's gospel. The kingdom is only mentioned in two places, in John 3 and John 18. What you don't find in John is pretty striking. Uh, but also, it is striking to find what is in John that you realize is not recorded in the other Gospels. What are some of those things? Well, first of all, in John, you have a unique prologue, that very uh, uh, programmatic, profound, mysterious passage that opens the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and opens up over those first 18 verses. Utterly unique portion of the New Testament You have a unique purpose statement. Most of the other gospels don't include a purpose statement. We saw that a moment ago in John 20. John tells us precisely why he wrote his gospel account. In John's gospel, you also have many unique signs and discourses and interactions with various individuals. Where did Jesus turn water into wine? It's only recorded in John 2. How about Nicodemus and all that conversation about how we must be born again? You're only going to find that in John 3. The woman at the well, that account is only given in John 4. The healing of the man born blind in John 9. The raising of Lazarus, that's revealed to us in John 11 and only in John 11. You have the record of Jesus' Judean ministry. Uh, Not so much about what he did in Galilee, which is, of course, the feature of the other gospels, but you have his Judean ministry emphasized in John's gospel. Uh, You have in John's gospel what is some of the most precious material for Christian people in all of the Bible in John chapter 13 through 17. I'm referring, of course, to the Upper Room Discourse or sometimes called the Farewell Discourse, all that rich material on discipleship. Just as an aside, uh, you Christians eager to grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, two passages that should receive a great deal of emphasis in your Bible study, the Sermon on the Mount, especially as it's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, and the Upper Room Discourse, as recorded in John 13 through 17, some of the most precious material in all the Bible. And, of course, it's in John 17 that we have Jesus' high priestly prayer. How precious and sweet is that prayer to the believer? Well, it only comes to us in John's gospel. And then you have this interesting, I don't know what we would call it, a, a, an epilogue or a, a, an afterword, as it were, in John 21. There it's recorded, Peter's restoration Uh, On the beach, when he meets the Lord Jesus, he's denied the Lord, he's forsaken the Lord, and then the Lord comes to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? He asks him that three times, and he tells uh, Peter to feed his lambs. That's recorded only in John's gospel. Well, I bring all of this up, not in any way to argue that there are discrepancies between the gospel. We know, of course, that's not the case. I bring this up simply to highlight the utter uniqueness of John's gospel, That John has unique things he wishes to share with us as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And aren't we thankful that the Lord moved in such a way to make this material available to us? You might be wondering what what is the reason for the difference? Why would we expect to find so much unique material in John as opposed to all of the other gospels? Well, keep in mind, first of all, a different audience is in view. Uh, John is not writing to the same exact audience that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing to. He's writing primarily to, um, at this point, Jews scattered throughout the empire. This is after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and Jews are scattered all over, and and, uh, John is writing to them. But we find out more than that, he's writing to the whole world. He's not just writing to some small Jewish rabbinic community. He's writing to the entire known world at that time. We also need to appreciate, if we're trying to make sense of the uniqueness of John's gospel, that John was written significantly later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Most scholars believe that John certainly came last of the four gospels. More than that, it was written something like 15 years after the other gospel accounts. Believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke were probably written in the 50s, early 60s. John's gospel likely appeared in the 80s, potentially as late as the 90s. So it appears much later, and it's widely believed that John would have had at least one or two, perhaps all three, of the other gospel accounts before him. He knows what's already been recorded and what's gone before, and here he now sets down, perhaps to supplement some of that material from his own personal remembrances as an intimate disciple. Of the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, we need to recognize that John is simply bringing his own unique burdens and telling his own story. Uh, we, We don't have to ascribe to John some unique program or something like that. He's simply recalling some of the material, some of the events that were most important to him to record. He has his unique burdens. This is his account. He's already aware of the other accounts and what others have written, but this is his account from the vantage point of his unique intimacy with the Lord Jesus. And then finally, and you just sort of retreat into this as a Christian person, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit wanted to reveal to us. And this is the way in which he wanted to reveal it. Remember, John is inspired by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit wants us to have the gospel of John in all of its uniqueness and all of its simplicity and profundity. This is inspired by the Spirit of God. Well, all of this is to say, John is a profoundly unique gospel, and I hope that each of you appreciate it in all of its uniqueness and all of its majesty. Second major point now in introducing the gospel of John to us this morning, let's consider some of the major features and themes of John's gospel. It's 21 books, it'd be hard to read just in one sitting, it's not impossible but you can feel a little bit overwhelmed as you uh, go chapter by chapter, and where am I in the book? Well, all I want to do is to give you some features and themes to sort of hang your hat on as you are studying the book, and there's uh, three major sort of headings uh, that I'd like to give to you. First of all, in John's gospel, we have uh, what is referred to by scholars as the seven signs, the seven signs, the first half of John's gospel the first 12 chapters or so is often referred to as the book of signs it's a systematic recording of these seven signs Jesus did and they are meant each one to reveal his glory to evidence that he is the Christ the son of god and each has its own unique significance so uh, the first in John 2 is Jesus turning the water into wine the second also recorded recorded in John 2 is the cleansing of the temple the third is in John four. It's the healing of the royal official's son. In John five, you have the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda. In John chapter six, you have the fifth of the seven signs. It's the feeding of the multitude or the five thousand. John chapter nine, you have the sixth sign. It's the healing of the man born blind. And then you have the seventh sign, which is one of the most spectacular in Jesus' earthly ministry, and that is the raising of Lazarus recorded in John 11. And so we'll consider as we go through the first 11 or 12 chapters of John's gospel, each of these seven signs and seek to understand their significance. Beyond that, beyond the seven signs, now secondly, you have the seven I am statements. Seven I am statements, these great statements Jesus makes about his own self-identity, who he is as the Christ and as the Son of God. The first we have is recorded in John 6, 35, and there Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus is revealing something to us about who he is, and we'll consider that text when we come to it. The second is in John 8 and verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. John 10, verse 9, the third one, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The fourth, just a couple of verses later in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The next is found in John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live The sixth I am statement, perhaps it's the most well-known. It's in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the final of the major I am statements found in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So you have the seven signs, the seven I am statements, and now this is not at all inspired, but I'm making it fit, okay? The seven major themes of John's gospel. I could have given five, I could have given ten, but since we had seven signs and seven I am statements, there are seven major themes that come to the fore in John's gospel. First of all, this is by far the largest theme. We have in John's gospel revealed the identity of Jesus, First of all, as the Messiah, secondly, as the unique Son of God. And John wants to make this point clear from the beginning. In the prologue, he reveals that Jesus is begotten of the Father, he's the very Son of God. John 1 verse 41, uh, we read this, he, that is Andrew, first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. It's interesting, in the other gospels, the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, At least in the way those gospel writers are writing, it it tends to come a little bit later. But John wants to establish this from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ. In the account with the woman at the well in John 4, verse 25, we read, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You're looking at the Christ. You're looking at the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one who was promised in the Old Testament, the promised seed of David, the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote of. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Radical, dramatic clarity on who Jesus is in John's gospel. Secondly, you have as a major theme the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We get a very intimate portrayal of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Of course, Jesus says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Dramatic statement. I and the Father are one. He said that no one comes to the Father except through me. He says to Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There's remarkable clarity on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in John's gospel. A third major theme, and that is the Holy Spirit's identity and ministry. There is more concentrated material in the book of John on the Holy Spirit than any other book in the Bible, especially in John 14 and 15 and 16. Next, you have the subject of faith, a theme of faith in John's gospel. Jesus is constantly calling men and women to believe Faith is understood to be the door through which one enters into eternal life and into relationship with God. And we will see as there is true faith, so there is false faith or spurious faith or faith that is ephemeral based on something other than the absolute truth about Jesus. Faith is a major theme in the gospel of John. Next, you have the theme of eternal life, massively profound theme in John's gospel. Another theme is God's sovereignty in salvation. John knows nothing less than a God who is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. He says, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will by no means cast out. He says a few verses later in John 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Great deal of clarity on the sovereignty of God. But then wonderfully, the seventh theme is the universal scope and offer of the gospel. Alongside that emphasis on divine sovereignty, John holds forth the universal appeal of the gospel. Again and again, we will see the Lord Jesus offering himself to any and all who would believe on him. Indeed, he offers himself to the whole world. That's what the Samaritans say after they come to have faith in Jesus Christ in John 4. Indeed, this is the Savior. Of the world. John's Gospel, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, provides the warrant for the free offer of the Gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that's the seventh theme I've listed for you. All right, now the third and final heading, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. And the main thing I want us to look at today, and that is the purpose of John's Gospel. You have these three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They've been around for at least a couple or a few decades now. Why does John set out to write his gospel? Well, We're going to spend many months studying this gospel. What do we hope to find there? And more importantly, what did John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intend for us to find in his gospel? We have this in our text this morning, John 20, verse 30 through 31. Please read it again with me. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did you write, John? Why did you undertake after three other gospel accounts to sit down and share your own narrative of what took place? What was the purpose of These 20 chapters so far, this book of 21 chapters, John says his stated purpose is to engender faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If faith in the Son of God is not produced, and if faith in Jesus Christ is not nurtured, this time that we're going to spend over the next several months in John's gospel will have been wasted. My prayer in this series, as we open up page by page, chapter by chapter in John's gospel, my prayer is that some people will come to have saving faith for the very first time and that others will have their faith strengthened and nurtured and fed. I hope to carry the gospel of John like a pitcher of water and to pour it over our hearts week after week. And I hope for some of us, faith will grow for the very first time. New faith would spring forward. And I hope for those of you who already have faith, that your roots would be strengthened and that your fruits would be increased as we consider the Gospel of John together. In the time that remains, I just briefly want to open up this purpose statement. Uh, Don Carson, his spectacular commentary on the Gospel of John says this, to expound in detail each word and phrase of this purpose statement would be to expound the very Gospel itself. To expound in detail, each word and phrase would be to expound the gospel itself. So let's just go phrase by phrase in the time that remains. First of all, John says, these have been written. These have been written. What's he referring to? Well, at the very least, he's referring to the seven signs recorded earlier in the book, the wonderful deeds and wonders that Jesus performed. He turned water into wine in John chapter 2, and there... Uh, It says this, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. From the very beginning, faith was engendered by these signs that were done. And of course, you have the other seven signs recorded, each one to elicit faith in the heart of the believer. But I don't think it was just the seven signs that John is referring to, those wonders recorded way back near the beginning of the book. I think that John has in mind the foremost, being the most spectacular sign that's recorded in the gospel, and that is the resurrection of Jesus himself. His uh, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. Look at the immediate context, if you would. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we get our purpose statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. The immediate context is Jesus standing with his resurrection body holding forth the very wounds that were inflicted upon him at his death. And there Thomas beforehand is prone to doubt but now he actually puts his fingers in the wounds themselves and he has faith in Jesus Christ. And I think John wants us to call to our minds this great penultimate sign of the Lord Jesus rising from the dead. And that act more than any other is to engender faith in us that the Lord Jesus died and rose again. And this along with those other wonders that he performed have been written so that you may believe. Well, I want us to appreciate at this point, a very simple point, that the grounds of faith is always seeing Jesus Christ in the scripture. John is saying, I've written these things about the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. He has risen from the dead. And my hope is that in reading this account, you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. His desire, his expectation is that as we look at the Scriptures, as we read his gospel, we'll see Jesus Christ there and we'll believe. The simple point I'm trying to make is that faith is always grounded upon seeing the Lord Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible. Now listen, personal testimony in our evangelism is very important. It's wonderful to recount your personal experience of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But what is far better is if you could take a lost person to the Gospel of John and read through it with them and unfold for them Jesus Christ written across every page and show them there Jesus Christ revealed in the scripture because John's expectation is that people will see him there and that they will believe that he indeed is the Christ, the son of the living God. All right, the second phrase here in the purpose statement. These are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe. John just comes right out and says it. I'm trying to evangelize you. I want you to believe the gospel. That's my goal. That's my purpose in writing. I want you to have true and genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Leon Morris writes this Faith is fundamental, and John longs to see men believe. He has not tried to write an impartial history, he is avowedly out to secure converts. D.A. Carson writes a similar thing John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth, the truth that the Christ is the Son of God, Jesus, whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. Listen, faith, that is belief, believing faith, is so essential and basic to Christianity. You will never understand Christianity if you do not understand the nature of true saving faith. It's absolutely fundamental to our religion. To understand this concept of faith, and in many ways, unique to Christianity. Well, faith is a massive theme in John's Gospel. The the Greek word that's used for faith or believing is pastuo. It's used 98 times. It's used in almost every chapter in the book. Faith as the gift of God, as the appropriate response to Jesus' words and works, is one of the most prevalent themes in the book. And this is one of the reasons why we see Jesus repeatedly inviting people to do what? To believe in him. He doesn't ask them to give him money. He's not asking them to perform certain vows or sacrifices. He wants faith. And I say that to you, my friend. What John is after in this gospel, what the Holy Spirit is after in this gospel, what God himself revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, is after is your faith. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God of the living God. And as I mentioned before, we're going to see that John takes great pains to delineate between true faith and false faith. Faith is not mere mental assent. Faith is not ultimately relying upon supernatural displays of power. Faith focuses on Jesus Christ, the person and who he is and what he promises to do for sinners. And this faith results in real discipleship, real obedience my friends we will not get far in our understanding of faith in John's gospel if we don't appreciate the manifold ways in which faith is expressed John is going to tell us faith is a matter of coming it's a matter of drinking it's a matter of tasting it's a matter of eating it's a matter of seeing it's a matter of having John employs very powerful verbs to describe this experiential aspect of faith Faith is the whole-souled commitment of all that we are to all that Jesus Christ is. We come to him as the good shepherd. We drink from him as living water. We eat of him as the bread of life. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. The role of faith in Christianity is so misunderstood in these days, but it's so foundational. And one of the things I hope we learn in this study is precisely what the nature of true saving faith is. Uh, Thirdly, of four points here in this purpose statement, we see that these have been written, these signs, especially the resurrection, so that you may believe, so that you may have faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What exactly are we to believe Where is our faith to be founded? Simply, we're to believe the gospel most concisely stated in these words that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the longed-for Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one of whom Moses wrote of in the law. He's the one of whom the prophet spoke in days gone by. He's the promised seed of David, the coming king of Israel. He is nothing less than the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. But John wants us to understand that Jesus is not only the longed-for Messiah. He's the very son of the living God sent into the world to reveal the Father. And Jesus, as God's son, was sent on a divine mission from the Father to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. John 3.16 says, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Faith's object is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Fourthly and finally, and now in closing, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I mentioned earlier that eternal life is a major theme in John's gospel. Well, here in the purpose statement, John comes right out and tells us what the goal is, that we would have life in Jesus' name. This is the end of the matter. This is what is held out to that soul that fixes faith upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal life. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's the promise that's held out in John 3:16, Everlasting life, that you would not perish, all those who believe on Jesus Christ. Well, we will open up this theme in greater depth when we get to the exposition of the book. But suffice it to say for now that eternal life for all those who have faith in Christ is the very promise of the gospel. And there is no life found outside of Christ. I can remember distinctly a conversation with a young man uh, this is a couple of years back now. He was an unbeliever. He had been in a Christian context in the past, but was very confused about the gospel and about who Jesus was. And it, it was so striking and arresting when he said this to me. We were going through the gospel of John together. That's usually my go-to in evangelism. If someone will read the gospel of John with me, I consider that a great victory. And we were going through the gospel of John, and, and this young man was struggling with the idea of coming to Christ and believing on him and, and I was making this point about how Jesus offers life, eternal life to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. And he fixated on this idea about life. And he, he said, I don't really understand that. I feel like I need to come to Jesus for a more noble reason. Like I, I shouldn't be thinking about the reward. I shouldn't be thinking about all the benefits he holds out to me. I should come to him just because of him, just because that's what... I should do. It's not a noble reason to be thinking I want life and therefore I'm going to go to Jesus for it. Well I did everything in my power that day to convince him and I want to do the very same now to you that that's precisely why you come to Jesus. We come to Jesus for everlasting life. We come to him because he himself is said to be the way, the truth, and the life. It's life in Jesus name. If I have Jesus if I have God, I have everlasting life in paradise forever with him. I am drawn into the very life of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And listen, if you're sitting here and you've wondered, is it, is it right for me to come to Jesus because I want to go to heaven? Is it right for me? I just, wow, paradise sounds so great and I really want to go there, but I shouldn't come for that reason. Listen to me, that's precisely why you come to Jesus, because he holds out to you life. That story of the woman at the well in John 4 looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places and here she is going back and forth to that well which is a a symbol of satisfying and quenching her thirst. What does Jesus hold out to her? I am living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst. Well, he says that to us this morning. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you... You, my friend, you, young person, you may have life in Jesus' name. And if you're sitting there saying, eternal life sounds so wonderful. Heaven sounds so wonderful. I I so want that. I crave that. The message of John's gospel is that you find it in the person of Jesus Christ, and you come to him for nothing else than that. The one who said, I am the life, offers life to you. Everlasting life for all eternity in paradise with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the the thought of anyone here rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and as John's gospel says, perishing is unthinkable to us, especially when such abundant life is held forth in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even this morning, this life is offered. We pray that each of us would partake of it. Each of us would experience it. Each of us would have it now in the presence and in fullness at the last day. Father, we pray that you would come to each one who is thirsty, each one who is hungry, and would you bring living water, would you bring that bread of life who's said to be the very Lord Jesus himself. We pray, Lord, that you would enable each one to lay hold of Christ by faith, some for the very first time. For those of us who have been your people, perhaps for some years, may you help us to fix our faith afresh upon the Lord Jesus and there again find that life that he offers, that life that we are to have abundantly. Would we experience that this morning? We pray, Father, that each one would. In Jesus' name, amen.